So I want us to look at the scriptures in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in regard to uh, the triumphal entry and uh, what we refer to as Palm Sunday in the scriptures, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 um, today. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father God, we... Just ask, Lord, today for your blessing to rest upon the reading of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit today. Help us, Lord, to be receptive to what your spirit has to say and to put it into practice. Father, as we pray, we also want to remember all of those suffering with uh, flooding in, in many places. As this snow melts that we've received, we just pray, Lord, that you would protect um, places from flooding here also. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, um, there was a book written by Gene Smith, who is a noted American historian. And the title of that book was, When the Cheering Stopped. It was the story of Woodrow Wilson, president, 28th president of the United States. He had suffered from dyslexia as a child and yet went on to get his Ph.D. and become the president of Princeton. And then eventually he became the U.S. president. He was the one that was responsible for the Federal Reserve System and leading the U.S. into World War I. And he had fought very hard to keep us out of the war until in 1917 when he concluded that the worldwide democracy would be hurt if the U.S. didn't go into war and didn't enter. So President Wilson announced at that time that this would be the war to end all wars. <laughs> we know how well that ended for him. Um, when that war was over, however, Wilson became an international hero. On his first visit to Paris, after the war, Wilson was greeted by cheering mobs everywhere he went. <laughs> he, 
He was actually more popular than their own heroes and their own nations. He spent six months in Europe building support for his League of Nations that he wanted. That was to govern the territorial issues around the world and prevent any further wars. <laughs> that cheering lasted for about a year. And then the political leaders in Europe became more concerned about their own agendas uh, than they were about lasting peace, according to Woodrow Wilson. And at home, Woodrow Wilson ran into opposition in the Senate, and uh, the League of Nations was not ratified, and it was just a horribly, if you read, read the history during that time, it was horribly crushing defeat to Woodrow Wilson. Under the strain of all of that, he had a very severe stroke that left him barely able to move and to function during the re remainder of his life. His second wife, Edith, who he married just right after he became president, gave most of the decisions, handed down the decisions uh, to his cabinet members, and she only would take the major, most major decisions even to him to have him decide uh, and make those in his bed. To date, he is the most disabled president that we have ever had. And he left the office a completely broken and defeated man who died only two years and 11 months later after he left office. It kind of happened that way to Jesus. He emerged on the scene, the public scene, and overnight, he was an overnight sensation, and everyone wanted to get to him, and everyone wanted to see him. He would try to go off to be alone, and people would still follow him. I'm preaching at the Good Friday service at 12.05 uh, at the UCC on, on Good Friday this Sunday, and, and one of the, the passages that I'm preaching from talks about how people, the Greeks, had come and they simply said, we want to see Jesus. <laughs> that was the mindset of the people. They wanted to see Jesus. There was applause for him. He would try to go off by himself and still people would follow him. They'd you know, get in a boat and go across the lake. They'd chase him down in all kinds of places to find him. The masses lined up in the streets as he came into town. Great crowds came to hear him teach and to preach. Religious expectation of a political messiah swept through the countrysides. And everyone thought, finally, here is the man who's going to save us from Roman oppression. And on Palm Sunday, leafy palm branches were spread out before him, and there were shouts of Hosanna, save us. In Hosanna, they were in effect demanding that Jesus save them now from Roman oppression. What had caused such applause? What had caused such cheering in in the life of Jesus. Even at the age of 12, Jesus was already teaching with authority in the temple. Learned scholars were learning from Jesus. He preached and taught the people in the language of the people 
with parables and things that they could relate to from common everyday life. And they, he didn't use any deep theological terms that were hard to understand. He taught in a way that people could understand and relate. But it wasn't just his teaching and his preaching that drew the crowds. Jesus did miracles and he healed people and he cast out demons. Jesus knew both the law and the spirit of God in the law. The Pharisees knew the law, but they didn't know the spirit of God that was in the law. And Jesus was able to teach them rules and laws in a way that people were willing to draw near to them. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't intimidate people. And when Jesus looked out at the crowds, he saw people and he saw them with compassion and with love. Not with a judgmental eye, like so many of the Pharisees. And so there was this cheering that was going on. There were these people that just thronged to see Jesus. But the cheering did not last very long. We usually talk at Palm Sunday about how here we are on Palm Sunday and these crowds are waving their palm branches and they're so excited about Jesus. And by Friday, they're shouting, crucify him. <laughs> but actually the cheering had stopped for some people a long time before. The religious leaders, they, the religious establishment, they had quit cheering almost from day one. Why did the cheering stop? Why did people who wave their palm branches on Sunday, why by Friday did they yell, crucify him, crucify him? I, I don't know that I know the answers to all of that, but I do want to suggest that there were three critical things that happened in the life of Jesus that offended those who had been cheering him. Number one, Jesus loved all people. Secondly, Jesus failed to meet their messianic expectations of a Messiah, of a Savior who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. And thirdly, Jesus talked about, and he walked to a cross willingly. And not too many people want a Savior who becomes their Savior by means of a cross. So let me talk to you about those things. All the way through the Gospels, you and I are met with a Jesus who influences people that no one else cared 
about. All the way through the Gospels, we are met with a Jesus who reached out to, took the hands of, went to places with them that the Pharisees would never, ever have contaminated themselves by being with those people. They were offended that Jesus ate with him. <laughs> Love that. He loved people no one else wanted to love. He touched people that no one else would go near. Even the disciples seemed frustrated with him because of the attention he gave to the people when they thought he should be doing something else for someone else. Even, even little children came to Jesus and the disciples said, Shoo, shoo, go away. <laughs> Because they just didn't think children were worth the time of Jesus. The Pharisees were never, ever happy about. They were never understanding of the choice that Jesus made in his friends. They were always criticizing him for spending time with tax collectors and, and with sinners. His choice of disciples didn't make any rational sense either for that matter. I mean, the people Jesus chose to be his disciples were not any of them. None of them would have made the grade in the religious establishment of the day. <laughs> he expected natural enemies of each other to come together in one group and be discipled. I mean, you had zealots. Zealots were people that were, you know, they... If they could sneak up behind a Roman soldier and kill them and bury them and, and nobody knew the difference, they would do it. They were the, they were the terrorists of the day. They, they, they wanted to kill any Roman any way they could. And Jesus had a couple zealots as disciples. Then Jesus had Matthew as a tax collector for the Romans. <laughs> And he put those people together as disciples and said, hey, come follow me. This ought to be fun. And he brought them together and he discipled them. It's amazing to watch Jesus work with people that other people would not touch. Jesus simply loved people. And the problem that people had with that was that he loved people that they wouldn't want to love. It's okay if Jesus loves people that I love. <laughs> but if Jesus starts loving people that I don't love, then I start having a little bit of a problem with Jesus. And that's what was happening. Even when they put him on a cross, Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. 
So do we really love? Whether it is in being cheered or criticized, are we known for our love and our compassion? Jesus loved all people. And I want to ask you, does your cheering, does your love for Jesus, does it get diminished when he starts to ask you to love someone that you just don't naturally love? Can Jesus ask you to love people that you are not naturally inclined to love? The second reason why the cheering stopped in the life of Jesus is that Jesus failed their messianic expectations. Again, you've, you all know this, you've all heard this many times before, how the Jews of the day really expected that when the Messiah came, he would, you know, he would be their physical king. Not just a religious king, but their physical political king. And he would destroy the power of Roman of the Romans, and he would take over, and Israel would have their own political kingdom once again back then. Craig Anderson writes, is this a parade? I don't think so. This is more of a mob on the triumphal entry. There is a tone of unrest. There is a there is Violence, a tinder, is a tinderbox ready to explode. A parade doesn't explain a crucifixion that happens just a week later. A demonstration, a riot, those kind of things can explain a crucifixion five days later. Listen to the chants. Listen to the shouts of the demonstrators. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. And you can tell that their thoughts are heavy with David's kingdom is coming back this week and we are going to make it happen. <laughs> National security went from yellow to orange alert in Israel on Palm Sunday. There were these nonsensical claims for someone mounted on a silly donkey. <laughs> And that was part of the problem. They expected their Messiah to ride in on a great white stallion. Like kings do. And Jesus rode in on a dumb donkey. And it wasn't very grand. A humble donkey. Not white. Not a stallion. Jesus comes in on a donkey. James and John, two of his disciples, even wanted to know who would sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in this great powerful kingdom they were going to be part of. And they asked that question right here at the end of the life and ministry of Jesus. You see, people chase after power and sex and money. These two, they were after the power. And I think that's what ate away at Judas also. Not just money, but power. 
political power, when he realized that Jesus was not going to usher in the political kingdom and the political revolution against Rome, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas was not alone. James and John were not alone. Judaism as a whole was prepared for this earthly political kingdom, this Messiah who would come in riding on a great stallion, not a humble donkey. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. So let me ask you, does the cheering stop for Jesus in your life? Does your love for Jesus stop when Jesus is not the kind of Messiah? He's not the kind of God that you want him to be for you today. When God disappoints you and he doesn't answer your prayers like you want them to be answered. Or God doesn't bend the truth of scripture to accommodate your lifestyle. When God is not the kind of God you want him to be, does the cheering come to an abrupt halt in your life? So that at some point you yell, crucify, crucify. Friends, you have to let God be God. You cannot set the agenda for him. You cannot tell him what kind of a God he must be for you. You have to cheer him for the God that he is, not the one you want him to be. The third reason that I think the cheering stopped in the life of Jesus is that he kept bringing up the cross and death and sacrifice, self-denial. And none of those things are things that, you know, just send us into emotional tizzies. (laughs) We don't get excited about those kind of things. Jesus talked about the cross, and then he walked to the cross. Remember when he got ready to leave for Jerusalem, you know, the disciples said, why are we going there? There's no good going to come out of that. Thomas says, well, let's go with him so that we can die too. There's this fascinating passage in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer. And Peter says, no, (laughs) you must not suffer. You are going to be this great, powerful savior. Peter rebuked him. And Jesus told his disciples in the crowd that to come after Jesus meant taking up a cross and following him. So Jesus was not only saying that he was going to the cross, he was telling his disciples that to follow him meant that they would take up a cross, that they would do some things in their life that they would not want to do naturally. Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves and not to be ashamed of him. And this was when the crowds began to leave Jesus 
and walk away from him like much of our culture is doing today. They're leaving Jesus and they're walking away from him because he is not the kind of Messiah they want him to be. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. They didn't like the message of repentance and they didn't like the message of the cross and they didn't like the message of deny yourself. They certainly didn't like the message of die to yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, you know, he's the German pastor who was taken in by the Nazis and uh, put to death for standing up for the gospel during World War II. And he wrote, Jesus Christ must suffer and be rejected. This must is inherent in the promise of God. The scriptures must be fulfilled. There is a distinction here between suffering and rejection. Had he only suffered, Jesus might have still been applauded as the Messiah. If Jesus had gone and he had suffered, you know, there's lots of times. There's people that we can look at and we recognize and we recognize what they've suffered. And we cheer that. We honor that. But Jesus not only suffered, he was rejected. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on to say, all the sympathy and admiration of the world might have been focused on his passion. It could have been viewed as a tragedy with its own intrinsic value, dignity, and honor. But in the passion... In this week, Jesus is rejected as the Messiah. His rejection robs the passion of its halo of glory. It must be passion without honor. There was a huge difference between the sacrifices made by Vietnam veterans and the sacrifices made by those in World War II veterans. Both of them made sacrifices. But the Vietnam veterans suffered rejection in the midst of making those sacrifices that the World War II vets didn't make. They weren't rejected for their suffering. The Vietnam ones were. After they had suffered for our nation, they were rejected. They came home to people that did not honor them or respect them. And it was a horrible disservice to people who had sacrificed so much. Jesus sacrificed. And he suffered his life for us. And he might have done that as a religious hero. But he did not. He was rejected. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah. He was rejected. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures by not only suffering, but by being rejected and spit on and mocked. And all the other things that went along. So I want to ask this morning, when... Um, will the cheering of Jesus stop in your life? 
shortly after Palm Sunday. Because he calls you to love the unlovable? Is that what will stop the cheering of Jesus in your life? Or will the cheering of Jesus stop in your life because he isn't the kind of savior you want? He says some things that just get under your skin. He calls you to change some things that you really don't want to change. Will the cheering of Jesus stop in your life because he's not the Savior you wanted him to be? And thirdly, will the cheering of Jesus in your life stop simply because he takes and calls you to take up your cross and follow him? To do some things that just are uncomfortable. And I will guarantee you if you follow Jesus long enough, he will ask you to do some things you do not want to do. There is no way around that. If you follow Jesus long enough, he will ask you to do some things you do not want to do. Will the cheering of Jesus stop at that point? Now, we've had one sermon. I'm going to just throw in another one real quick. Real quick, okay? Are you okay with that? What do you do when the cheering stops in your own life? I want to suggest to you that you need to handle that in the same way that Jesus handled it when the cheering stopped in his life. When the cheering stops and when the criticism abounds and when difficulties come in, that hurts tremendously. What do you do then? You need to let Jesus set the example for you. First of all, you need to stop, drop, and roll. Stop and listen to what Jesus is saying, to what the Spirit is saying. Instead of fighting it, instead of fleeing, instead of running, just stop and listen in the midst of that. Secondly, drop to your knees and pray. Thirdly, sometimes in those times you need to just roll with the punches and be flexible. Anytime you become rigid, when life is difficult and there's criticism and all of that, when you're rigid, you're not near as prone to take abuse very well. But if you can just kind of be flexible and roll with the punches, it will help a lot in life. And Jesus, during the Passion, seemed to have that ability to roll with it. Secondly, when, when the cheering stops in your life, you need to choose blessing over bitterness. And you see Jesus doing that on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You need to choose prayer 
over pity, feeling sorry for yourself. Turn it back to God. Thirdly, you need to keep your character and your integrity intact. You ne nothing is worth sacrificing that. Nothing is worth sacrificing that. Jesus kept his character and he kept his integrity in check through it all. And the last thing is sometimes you just endure the cross for the joy set before you. And you need to remember the cross is not the end. The criticism is not the end. The tough thing in life you're going through is not the end. There's another day coming. There's an Easter coming. There's a second coming coming. There's a heaven coming. And you need to you know, endure the cross for the joy that is set before you.